Goddag, mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Velkommen til denne tredje episode af vores serie om europæiske idéer, som vi laver sammen med det kongelige bibliotek. Jeg har længe haft enormt meget lyst til at tale med den britiske filosof, forfatter og forsker David Runciman. Faktisk føler jeg, at jeg snakker en lille smule med ham hver eneste uge. Han taler i hvert fald til mig. Fordi David Runciman er vært på den bedste politiske podcast, jeg kender. Den, der hedder Talking Politics, som bliver lavet fra Cambridge University, hvor han hver uge inviterer sine forskerkolleger ind til at tale om, hvad der er sket i verden. David er også forfatter til en række meget spektakulære bøger, hvor han forsøger med historiske og idehistoriske og filosofiske greb at forstå og udlægge nogle af samtidens politiske konflikter på en måde, som alligevel er hævet over den hverdagslige journalistik, men ikke helt deroppe, hvor det bliver så abstrakt, så det ikke handler om noget. Han er med andre ord utrolig god til at bruge de europæiske idéer til at få greb om den europæiske virkelighed. Og det var jeg så heldig at have muligheden for at tale med ham om for nylig i det kongelige bibliotek. Og det, der følger nu, er vores samtale. Welcome to Copenhagen, David. It's a Thank great you. pleasure to be here pleasure with you. Pleasure to be here. Um, the first thing I want to ask you is just about the, the title of your books, because you know we have a lot of these books. Yeah. Fascism is coming, democracy is dying, everything that is good is withering away, and Lord Voldemort is coming from everywhere in the face of Donald Trump. Uh, but your, your title is different, and the direction of your book is different. It's yeah. called How Democracies End. It's called How Democracy Ends. You so, got it. So. Why did you choose that approach? Two, two reasons, really. I mean, it is true that the, the provocation for writing this book was the election of Donald Trump. And, and when it happened, even the day after it happened, there was a lot of coverage around the world saying that this is the end of something. This is the disaster that we've been waiting for. And even at the time, I thought that it was probably a mistake to look for the event that's going to signal the end of democracy. That feeling that something's going to happen. Times are tough. Politics is strange at the moment. And there's all sorts of, sort of dysfunction out there. And something's going to happen or someone's going to come along and that's going to signal the end. Yeah. And that's not going to happen, right? There is not going to be an event or a person and we'll all agree uh, it ended. So this book is partly to say if we are going to think seriously about the end of democracy because at some point it will end, everything ends eventually, this is not the perpetual state of things, we need to think beyond people and events and think about something much more drawn out something that might happen slowly. We might not even notice it. It might have ended, and we didn't <laughs> wake up to it until after it ended. So this is partly just trying to get away from thinking that there is the one thing that is the end. This is about the end as a drawn-out process. And then the other thinking behind this book is about Denmark. Um, <laughs> so a long time ago, this is, this is maybe 10 years ago, um, I started thinking about a book that I then wrote in the aftermath of the financial crisis about democracies in crisis. And in that book, I quote Francis Fukuyama's line, where he says, the goal of human history is getting to Denmark. So all human societies are trying to be you. And that that is the end point. You know, that's his kind of, you know, this is the teleology of politics. This is the best society that there has ever been. Um, and so the test of progress is how close you get to Denmark. And the measure of failure is, whether you failed to get to Denmark. So this is what political failure means. It means you kind of got close and then you fell back. And in that book I wrote, well, that's one way of looking at it. Um, <laughs> but there's another question, which is what would it be for Denmark to fail? 
So if this is the goal of human and social and political development, I wrote in that book, the big unanswered question of the 21st century is what does failure look like for the best societies? And my line there was, we have no idea because it's never happened. There has never been a society like Denmark, and Denmark here is a kind of emblem for the prosperous, stable, secure Western democracies that has failed because they have never failed. And so if we think history is a guide to this, we're wrong. So all I posed in that book was the thought that this is the great open question. We don't know. And the danger is that we think we know because we think we have historical examples to draw on. And so we get it wrong. And that's why we're so happy that you wrote your next book where, where, where you're exploring that question. Because um, I, re I read this little book. Uh, it's called On Politics, Politics right? Politics, yeah. yeah. And it's very interesting because I never thought of that uh, that you write in the book that there's the political success of Denmark, what we refer to as the Danish model. Yeah. Uh, but then there's also like the cultural power of Denmark, the soft power. Yeah. Uh, the, the television shows, the design, the arts, uh, and the, and the knitwear. <laughs> and the knitwear, exactly. And now even, which to me is kind of surprising, the Danish cuisine. Uh, yeah, absolutely. That I thought would never be a worldwide success, but I, I never saw these two aspects together, the political success story and the soft power. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, so I mean, it, it, you, the idea that Denmark is this kind of model is not simply that other countries should copy your political institutions and that you know, a secret to this success is somehow just to get the institutional structures right. It is the whole package and it goes together. And the amazing thing about it, the thing that makes Denmark this miracle, and it is a miracle, is that it is this kind of success story across the board. This is not the best political society to live in. This is the best society to live in. And politics has made that possible. But it's not the best society because you have the best politics. You don't have the best politicians. I don't think you have the best <laughs> politicians in the world. I don't know enough to judge, but I'm going to guess that that's not a controversial statement. Uh, not here. Uh, so, so it's that weird almost sort of alchemy, which is you get the politics right and you don't get the best politics. You get the politics right and you get the best society and then that can become the model, the thing that people aspire towards. So they, they don't aspire to your politics, they aspire to your, your way of life. Um, it is an amazing story. And, you know, if the Fukuyama view is that we're all heading to Denmark, <laughs> the question what comes after Denmark can get parked. It's like... Yeah, we'll deal with that when we get to Denmark, yeah. and only Denmark is in Denmark. We've all got to get there. But for all of us, it's a real question. Something, something comes after this. I'm not saying the end of democracy is the end of the world. I'm saying the end of democracy is the end of something, and something will come next. And, and very often when we think of uh, the end of democracy in the public sphere, we have these historical references yeah. to the 70s, or more frequently even to the, the 30s. The 1930s, you have yeah. this books out, bestsellers by Timothy Snyder on tyranny and most prominently perhaps uh, Madeleine Albright's book Fascism and they're saying well we should look at history, we're yeah. going back to the 30s, fascism is coming back, it's like we're peeling the chicken uh, feather by feather and, and just uh, in one moment we'll, we'll be left with, with disaster. But that's not how you look at it. No. Absolutely, I'm not denying that there are echoes. You can hear it in some of the political rhetoric. So some of the things that politicians say, when people look at Donald Trump and they see Mussolini, they're not wrong. You know, the, 
the gestures, I can't do them. The, the sort of, you have to have small fingers. The, 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 the gestures are the same. The racism, it's not dog whistle racism. A lot of it is just explicit racism. The conspiracy theories, the rise that we see of anti-Semitism everywhere. It's, it's prevalent in, in most Western societies now. So the rhetoric, absolutely, you can hear it. And then it's also striking that many of the institutions that are vulnerable now were the ones that were vulnerable then. So in Britain, our political institutions are pretty much the same as they were in the 1930s, when British democracy was really, really was under threat, even in Britain. Um, in the United States, they have the same institutions. We have the same political parties, Republicans versus Democrats, Labour versus Conservatives. So the politics looks the same, and it sounds the same, so the conclusion is, so when it goes wrong, it'll go wrong in the same way. But the difference is, everything else is not the same. <laughs> so I think the way to think about this is, take someone from the 1930s, take someone from Britain or Denmark or America in 1935 and show them our world. Take someone from Britain in 1935 and you showed them contemporary British politics. They would say, oh, I recognize, you've got politicians just like we used to have. There's, there's that kind of political rhetoric, your, you know, the suspicion of foreigners, there's the racism, there's the this, there's the that, there's the kind of rabble-rousing. And then, and then they would say, oh my God, the institutions, you haven't changed them at all. <laughs> it's like the House of Lords. <laughs> An American would say, but the Electoral College, you didn't, you didn't change it. Like, you know it doesn't work, right? It hasn't worked for 200 years. You didn't change it. Uh, but your parties are the same, they've got the same names. And so there would be this kind of, wow. And then that person would go, but everything else is completely different. Oh my God, you're so rich. You're so old. You're so healthy. Where, what happened to all of the poverty and the violence? What happened to the real, you know, the real risk of disaster? You changed everything about your societies and you didn't change your politics. Now, if that's true, then I think it's really unlikely that this politics is going to produce the same kind of you know, deep social and political change. So I argue in this book, the difference between the 1930s and now is that we are 10 times richer everywhere in the prosperous Western democracy. So the, the example that I give, for someone in the United States who says, oh, thinking about 1930s in America, where America came really close to the collapse of democracy. You know, there was serious talk about the need for dictatorship. Uh, in 1930s America, the social and economic and demographic conditions are comparable to 21st century Egypt. So for an American to say, oh, we should draw lessons from 1930s America, they ought to also think that they can draw lessons from contemporary Egypt, and they don't. <laughs> and that's a country where democracy really is ruined. You never hear an American say, we should learn from what's gone wrong in Egypt. Well, that's the same as trying to learn from what went wrong in the 1930s. We are 10 times richer uh, than we were then. We are much older. These are the best educated societies. These are the most peaceful societies. Now, that doesn't mean that they can't go wrong. This is the how no, no. Denmark fail question. But they're not going to go wrong in the way that young, violent, poor societies go wrong because they collapse into violence, into civil disorder, into fascism. Fascism is a movement of political violence driven by young men with weapons. That is not the future that we face. 
But isn't there another way of uh, claiming the analogy, which is you could say that after the Second World War, you made the UN, you had the Declaration yeah. of Human Rights, there was the liberal consensus, we are not racists, we cannot be racist, we have looked into the beast of humankind, so there was this, as long as we remember the Second World War, then we will not be racist, then we will understand that human rights are both protecting us against the worst, and, uh, and giving the opportunity to live out the best in the human species, but that we're kind of forgetting this memory of the Second World War. So now you see racism creeping back and we're not as alert to it as we would be earlier. So I definitely think just because we're richer, older, more peaceful, better educated does not mean that we're immune to racism and the other, the, you know, the worst strands of politics that were there in the 1930s. So definitely it would be a mistake to think I definitely don't believe that we can't go back to the 1930s because we can't start believing those things again. My argument is more that even if we do believe those things, we don't act them out in the way that mm. would happen back then, which is basically what you get is militarized civil breakdown and violence. So that, that is true, but I, yeah, I do tend to agree with you that the other thing that we, we forget is that what got us out of the 1930s <laughs> was war. <laughs> and you, know, you, don't, you don't go from the 1930s to now through a process of peace you go there through a process of war. And the great success story of democracy, the, sort of the, the 30 glorious years, as they're sometimes called, yes. from kind of 46, 47 through to the mid-70s, where you know, social democracy was built in Europe, where we achieved incredible economic growth with relatively full employment, the kind of Keynesian model worked. That is all a product of the experience of war, both the memory of war, but also the institutions that war created. War creates welfare states. War creates social consensus and social cohesion. So as we move further away from that, it's inevitable that the thing that glued that democratic success story together starts to fray. And then one of the big challenges for us, for all, I think, Western societies, is if one of the lessons of the 20th century is the precondition of democratic success is war, what do we do when there isn't going to be a war? Because I, you know, it's, it, you'd have to be a lunatic to say, well, we need another war, and then we, can, you know, then we can revive our democracies. So let's assume that war is not an option. So we can't do it through the collective experience of violence. We have to find something new. So how are we going to do it? It's a new challenge for us. I'm a historian saying this. To use history as our guide would be a huge mistake. I heard you were discussing that with your friends Chris and Helen on the podcast. And I was listening to it and I said, what about climate change? Is this not the disaster we've been waiting for to reinvent democracy? I mean, it's a really good question. And I have a chapter in this book about catastrophes. And you know, some catastrophes galvanize democracies, and, or the threat of some catastrophes galvanize democracies, and other catastrophes paralyze them, kind of freeze them. And yeah. We seem to be weirdly at that point where climate is not galvanizing us, it's kind of freezing us. We're sort of in this defensive crouch. We're, you know, we're aware something bad is coming down the line, but our response is not to, to act, it's to kind of just think that we can wish it away. I do think part of the problem with climate change is that it doesn't have the time frame that those historic examples have. So there is that view of democracies that democracies always do the wrong thing until the last moment and then they do the right thing. One way you can describe democracies is they don't come up with the answer to the problem by being democracies. They make more mistakes than other systems, but they make so many mistakes they eventually <laughs> come upon the right answer. 
But that's not going to work with climate. Like, keep on making mistakes until we reach the moment where we have no choice but to do the right thing, because it'll be too late. So if you want to find a historical example of democracies acting 20 or 30 years ahead of time to preempt some disaster, there isn't one. And you tell me if you think there is one, but I don't think that there is one. I mean, there are examples of democratic farsightedness after the Second World War, the creation of the institutions around Bretton Woods and the, you know, the international financial order. The United exactly, Nations yeah. has, has a set of you know, institutional hopes and with some delivery as well. You know, there is a way in which democracies can kind of think long term, but the galvanizing event had already happened. Yeah. Preemption, there is no evidence that democratic systems are good at preemptions. There is some evidence that autocratic systems are better at it, that the Chinese system is better equipped to tackle climate change if what you want is action now to forestall something that's happening. Because after all, the Chinese regime is thinking about its long-term survival. Democratic governments are thinking about getting through the next election. There is more capacity for long-term thinking in some autocratic regimes. It's a bleak message. I think it's also much riskier because the thing that autocratic regimes are much worse at is changing if they get it wrong. So you're more likely to get the preemptive action, and if the preemptive action is wrong under the Chinese system, they will stick with it because their legitimacy depends on not admitting that they're wrong. If a democratic government does it and gets it wrong, we'll kick them out and get someone else in to do it. The trouble is, they're not going to do it because the, the timeline is 20, 30 years ahead. So it's at least possible. I mean, I think this is probably the bleakest version I hope of the it's story. the bleakest I, version. Yeah, which is that <laughs> this system that we've had, we haven't had it for that long, somewhere between 50 and 100 years, this way of doing yes. politics, which has survived these, essentially these three or possibly four great threats, the First World War, the Great Depression, the Second World War, and the Cold War. And it was well-equipped in its different ways. And even the Cold War, it wasn't like at the beginning of the Cold War the democracies worked out how they were going to win it 40 years down the line. They just kept chopping and changing through the Cold War, and they outlasted the rival regime, which eventually made the mistakes that it couldn't recover from. But those are nothing like climate change. I would still rather be in a democracy when it all goes wrong. <laughs> you know, I still think that democratic systems are the best places to be in worst-case scenarios because they're much more adaptable. But at preventing the worst from happening, I'm not sure. And we were talking about this earlier. So this summer was hot. Uh, it was hot here, right? Yes. It was very hot in Britain. Uh, in Britain, people just went, oh, that's nice. <laughs> it, was, it was described in the newspapers as a nice summer, yeah. uh, a barbecue summer. Uh, it had zero political effect because people were thinking about Brexit. But you say here, you know, that it, it has... Uh, definitely, uh, yes. Uh, but it's going to have to be worse than that. This is the, you know, the challenge for 21st century democracies, is if we think the thing that will galvanize us is the crisis that makes us realize exactly what's at stake, it's quite hard to think what those will be, because even if you take the 2008 financial crisis, that was really bad. Yeah. Now, that took the world to the brink of something that could have been absolutely catastrophic. But it wasn't bad enough to change the system. We still have the same system that we had in 2008 in terms of international financial governance, <coughs> in terms of the risks that are out there in the banking system and so on. So 2008 was not bad enough to galvanize democratic change. What it was bad enough to do was to galvanize democracies to stop it from getting worse. 
actual change is harder than that. You wrote an essay, I think it's two years ago, yeah. called The Education Cleavage. Yeah. And uh, I think you, to, to a certain extent, predicted uh, the election of Donald Trump, or at least what was in yeah. that essay. When I asked you for the three explanations, I wanted to give you a chance of offering your own fourth explanation, The, the Education Cleavage, because yeah. you were kind of prophetic. I did write, I wrote that between Brexit and Trump. Yeah. And it was because the evidence had already emerged that in the Brexit vote, the number one strongest indicator, if you could only ask one question of an anonymous voter, someone behind a screen, and you could only ask them one question, you're not allowed to ask that person, how did you vote? And even if you did, they might lie. So you can only ask one question. What question would give you the best likelihood of then guessing how they voted? So it turns out the question you should ask is, do you support the return of capital punishment? So that had the strongest correlation. But the second best question after the capital punishment question is, did you go to university? So you ask, did you go to university? And if the answer comes back yes, there was a 70% chance that person voted remain. And if the answer comes back no, there's a 70% chance that person voted leave. Whereas gender, it was 50-50. On sort of class or income grounds, it's about 60-40. On age, the older someone was, the more likely they were to vote leave but the education one was the strongest one. And I said at the time, this is clearly going on in the United States too, and it was confirmed after okay. Trump's election, which is same thing, if you could only ask one question, the question is, did you go to college? That's the single strongest indicator. You, there was a thought that, oh, Trump voters were the left behinds. Well, some of them were the left behinds, and some of them are really affluent people dotted all over the United States. Same with Brexit. Some of the Brexit voters are people in the north of England living in the former industrial heartlands with a strong sense that kind of globalization hasn't delivered for them. Some of them are quite young, young people who don't see the prospect of a secure job. But some of them were property-owning, conservative-voting people living in the south of England who'd done very well out of the last 20 or 30 years, who had pensions, you know, stocks and shares. They only had one thing in common, those two groups. Neither went to university because... In Britain, 50 years ago, 2% of the population went to university. And it's a really difficult question. I don't think we've quite got to the answer of this. Is Why is that the thing that connects exactly. them? Because they have such different experiences. And their interests are so different. So one lot is property-owning, pension-drawing, you know, well-off, <laughs> quite cosmopolitan often people living in places like Surrey, quite near to London. And some of them might be sort of... 32-year-old men who feel that their prospect of getting a secure job has gone and living on you know, short-term contracts in sort of Yorkshire or Lancashire, you put that they've got nothing in common. They, they, they don't meet each other and go, oh, we never went to university. We've got so much to talk about. <laughs> like, so, so what is it? Um, exactly. So it's one of the indicators that our politics is being driven more by cultural issues and sort of potentially identity issues necessarily than material issues. So it seems that... One thing about going to university is you leave home. Often, you, and not always, you can go to your yeah. university. But people who go to university are more likely to have kind of... And leave home in the sense that leaving your hometown. Leaving your hometown. You do kind of encounter people who... You, know, you may not think like them when you arrive, but you often <laughs> think, you know, think like them by the time you leave. It's true that to have a university education is to be well set up for a networked, interconnected world. You're more comfortable kind of moving through it. So even if you're not doing particularly well now, you kind of see the advantages. So students in Britain are overwhelmingly in favour of staying in the European Union, even though many of them are much, much worse off than their parents 
who own homes, they're never going to own homes, who have secure jobs. A lot of these students are not going to have secure jobs, but who wanted to leave. So you can't really do it on, and it's the same in the United States. I remember reading that 61% of the white women who didn't go to college, they voted Trump. Yep. So for them, education was more important than gender, if you said that he would be for men and against women, and you'd yeah, yeah, say yeah. after the Hollywood access tape, wrap them by the pussy. You'd think on that hypothetical question, the gender question would be the one you would ask. Exactly. And that will tell you nothing with Trump, uh, because like you say, large numbers of women voted for Trump. What they had in common was not having been to college. What does that do to universities? Yeah. You have a lot of books coming out of American universities explaining how Donald Trump is a Terrible, threat to yeah, the yeah. political yeah. order. These universities, You're making it worse. Yes, these yeah. learning institutions, they become part of a political yeah, battle yeah. because they believe they defend truth and yeah. science against someone who's against fake news. Yeah. What does that do to the universities? So I, think, I do think it's really dangerous. Um, so I say this as someone who works in a university, Cambridge University, which is overwhelmingly pro-staying in the European Union. I would say of the people I work with, you know, it's like 95%, 5%, something like that. So when politics is divided left or right, it's not like either side can say they represent the truth. Like, no. you know, people understand we have our interests, you have your interests. Even when it's generational, you know, old people sometimes think they know more than young people, but I think young people <laughs> think they know more than old people. You know? <laughs> and in, in the current technological world, I think young people do know a lot more than old people. So it's not like one side has a monopoly of the truth. The real danger, particularly with academics, I know a lot of these academics, <laughs> is they think that their side is the right answer because they think we're not voting like this because it's in our interest to vote like this. No, exactly. We're voting like this because we know more than you. To which my response is, no, you don't. <laughs> so with the Brexit vote, I was surrounded by people who thought because they're smart and because they wanted to stay in the European Union, they knew why the European Union was a better bet. But you just ask them a couple of questions. They had no idea how the European Union worked. So what people do is they take their education as a sign that they are not tribal. And they are tribal. Yes. So if you're on the other side, it is doubly annoying. So it's not just that that tribe is opposed to your tribe. They don't even realize they're a tribe. <laughs> they think they're... They're accusing you of tribalism. Yeah, exactly. Actually. Now... You know, I think as a strategy, <laughs> yeah. this is not going to go well. I mean, it's not going to end well if you know, the people on one side of this divide kind of insist on the fact that they are above the divide. And there are some really good books about that. There's a great book called Democracy for Realists that yeah. I quoted in that article. It was published a couple of years ago, kind of saying we've got to be realistic about democracy. You know, everyone is tribal. Um, no one really votes on the evidence. We vote on the way we're conditioned to vote, and then we respond to certain things. You know, it's often very poorly correlated to what's actually going on. And that's true on all sides. So it's true with the educated and the less well-educated. So well-educated people do not spend more time weighing up the evidence in politics. They're better at defending their positions, which you know, we, we confuse these things. So well-educated people are much better at justifying their prejudices than less well-educated people. <laughs> yes. That is not the same as not having prejudices. <laughs> there are some great studies of that in America as well, how the liberals are able to hold on to their 
yeah. but it is longer even than uh, than conservatives because they really do believe that they're backed by science. Yeah, and you, ha you, know, you hear this. So we are living in increasingly divided societies and it is part of the problem, not just online, not just in echo chambers, but in, in everyday life, people meet fewer people from across the political divide than they used to. You know, they're, they're sending their kids to schools that are more full of kids like the ones they want their kids to hang out with. There's more physical segregation going on. And then you hear these stories. I hear them a lot from Americans who sort of do cross those divides. And people from the sort of Republican side often say when they meet a liberal, wow, that person was even worse than I thought. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, knew, I knew they were snobbish and intolerant, but they actually think there's something wrong with me. <laughs> And then liberals go to the American South and they meet Republicans and they go, wow, they're really nice. <laughs> like, even though they clearly think I'm mad, they're kind of, you know, you have your views, I have my... Yeah. So the danger is that the liberal side of that divide is the toxic side. You know, a lot of people in these kinds of audiences might be on that side. And there's a feeling that all the toxicity is coming from the other side. But you hear a lot of it, you know, people who don't go to university, when they encounter people who go to university, they encounter people who actually disrespect them way more than the disrespect coming the other way. And I think we're tone deaf to that. And I see it, so I see it in Cambridge, I, you know, I can say this here, I see it all the time. <laughs> um, and I think it's going to end really badly unless we work out that what we have to do is to find a way to recognise that we are part of the problem. There's another point in your book that uh, did make a few headlines, even here, here in Denmark, and that surprised all, uh, me as well when I, when I heard the first time, namely that you say that you consider Mark Zuckerberg a worse threat yeah. to democracy than Donald Trump. Yeah. That is a good headline. Yeah, it is. That's why I wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> I also wrote it because it's true. So it's partly to make a point about Trump, which is the thing about Trump is that the threat is in plain view. You can see it, right? It's not like with Trump... He's kind of hiding who he really is. Um, uh, and also, I think we know what kind of power he has. I mean, it's frightening, and the fact that he controls you know, the nuclear arsenal and so on. There are bad scenarios there, but it's kind of visible, and I think you can see the ways in which it needs to be contained, and you see the institutions that are trying to contain it. And with Trump, you see him pushing constantly at the limits of his power. He's, he's probing for weaknesses in the institutions around him, and you, it's written there every day. I mean, the Supreme Court nomination was a perfect example of that, of him, how far can he push it? So you see the boundaries. Mark Zuckerberg has a kind of power that I don't think even he understands. He got it by accident. Uh, I think Mark Zuckerberg is probably a decent guy. I think he's a Democrat. Um, he's a liberal by all accounts. I think he wants the, you know, the best for people. I don't think he has any evil designs on democracy. I find people like that scarier when they have massive, unaccountable power. So he is less accountable, much less accountable than Donald Trump. I wouldn't say he has more power. He doesn't quite have the capacity to destroy the world, but he has a kind of power that we're not familiar with. So he's discovering, like we are, sort of the ways in which this thing that he's built, which has kind of fantastic features to it. So I'm not saying that because Zuckerberg is a bigger threat than Trump that Facebook is terrible. Facebook, in many respects, is a most, you know, one of the most wonderful creations in human history, a 2.4 billion person network where people can share and communicate and in many ways it's enhancing democracy, it's giving people access to information. But that network is controlled by an organization that is way more hierarchical than the White House. Uh, you know, people are working towards Mark Zuckerberg in a way they are not working towards Donald Trump. 
I know people who work at Facebook, and one of them said that you know, people who are working on a project at Facebook, there are only two questions that you ask of any major project that's undertaken at Facebook. The first question is, will it result in people spending more time on the network? Because that's the goal. The goal is to maximize usage. And the other question is, will Mark like it? Those are the only two questions. Now, he could be the nicest guy in the world with the best intentions, but if you have a 2.2, 2.4 billion person network that is being run by people who only ask those two questions, it could do damage to democracies in ways that we haven't even begun to think about. Now, if you're just trying to maximize usage and you don't mind what it is that people are looking at to maximize the usage, and then the only person that you're accountable to is some 33-year-old guy who, <laughs> who kind of, he knows stuff about tech, but I don't think he knows much about the world. Um, with Trump, what you see is what you get, and with Zuckerberg, what you see is not what you get. So, so you know, if we're dealing with people with huge power for good or for ill, Zuckerberg scares me more. And then the last reason is that Trump will be gone long before Zuckerberg's power is accountable to the democratic process. Zuckerberg and Facebook are around for a lot longer. Um, the European Union is doing something much more serious. If there is a sort of political space in the world where this is really being taken seriously, the unaccountable power of these monopoly tech organizations, it's in Europe. And the European Union is trying to regulate in various ways. The problem is the European Union is trying to regulate non-European corporations. So you know, there's this sort of American model of the, of the tech world where you have Silicon Valley and you have Washington and they're kind of at odds with each other. And there's the Chinese model where you have Alibaba and Baidu, equally powerful corporations, maybe in some ways more powerful. Yeah. And they are joined at the hip now with the Chinese state. And then you have Europe where people are trying to regulate, but there are no European corporations to regulate. I mean, it's, it's, it's Alibaba and Baidu, or it's Google, Amazon, and Facebook, and Microsoft and Apple. Um, and Europe can do a certain amount, but there's not that much Europe can do unless America does it too. And America might do it. I definitely believe that another American president, another American administration might well take on Facebook. I think if Trump is replaced by a Democrat, a Democrat could easily run on a platform which you know, is really strong about tackling monopoly power in Wall Street, but also in Silicon Valley. And when that happens, the American state will win. The American state is still more powerful than Facebook and Amazon and Google. The American state has got an army and it's got the global reserve currency. Those are the two most powerful political weapons in the world. Uh, but it would need a politician willing to use them. You know, I work in a newspaper. We do believe in the power of public opinion. And I do believe that the global public opinion is a new phenomenon with a, certain, with a certain power. And is Mark Zuckerberg not depending on some sort of legitimacy? And if the scandals keep rolling against him, if he's pictured as mm. the new face of evil, as this little spoiled brat with mm. a power that he doesn't understand, is he not vulnerable to think, the global yeah. public opinion and condemnation? I think he's vulnerable. So he's vulnerable to the fall in his share price. You know, he's, yeah. he's still a businessman, right? And the Cambridge Analytica scandal took about 20% off the share price, but you know, it needs to take 90% off the share yeah. price for him to really be in trouble. So I think he is vulnerable, and he's definitely very, very conscious of how it, he's presented now. But you know, I'm not sure it's about legitimacy. If you think of what I said about how the business mm -hmm. operates, it's about dependency. Facebook is trying to create a world where people depend on it. I mean, it doesn't matter whether they think it's legitimate or not. We think it's 
serious here. There are large parts of the world, particularly in Asia, where Facebook is the internet. So people, their only means of accessing the internet is because Facebook has given them for free Facebook. Yeah. And they have no other means. And so it literally is a monopoly. There are parts of the world in which you take Facebook away. So say the American government decides that it's going to shut down Facebook tomorrow. It could probably do that. Or certainly it could make life very, very difficult for Facebook. It couldn't shut it down because it would move, but it could make it incredibly difficult for Facebook. That would be catastrophic in Indonesia. That would be a calamity in parts of South Asia where people would lose the internet. And they depend on the internet to, to survive. It's a, it's a public good for some people that's at least as important as any physical public good. That's not the same as legitimacy. You know, finding a market where you capture a monopoly by giving someone a basic good for free in return for them using it forever is not legitimacy, it's dependency. And dependency is a really dangerous thing in politics, especially being dependent on an unaccountable power. Um, so I think he could probably go quite a long way without legitimacy as long as he still has dependency. We could break up the dependency, but to do that, states would have to intervene. You know, the Indian government would need to take Facebook on. We were discussing before we went in whether your book was an optimistic book or a pessimistic book. I, I, I don't read it as a, as a pessimistic book. I think okay. there are very apocalyptic books out there now, and you, your, your book is not that. Yeah. And in the end, you focus on what could be on the way to something better and yeah. new, new, new possibilities. And to a certain extent, we do see, I think, democratic fatigue within the old yeah. party systems. But on the other hand, we also see a lot of new movements yeah. inspired by ideals, yeah. momentum, yeah. carrying Corbyn forward. We see a lot of passion about yeah. referendums. Yeah, I think there are lots of ways in which we could have different forms of participation, whether it's sort of citizen juries, deliberative assemblies, you know, get, actually asking people not just what answer they want to give to a question, but what question they think should be asked. Ask a question that people don't actually have the opportunity to understand the implications of the answer that they might give. Have minimal public consultation. Have no account of how the answer is going to feed back into representative democracy. Have a short campaign. Leave a vacuum. Leave it unclear whether there'll be another referendum and so on. You could do more participatory democracy in ways that involve people across the board. But it's the binary thing that's the mistake. So I think referendums are a disaster, frankly. I mean, I know there's been one in Ireland recently that seems to have been... So maybe one about abortion, abortion. Right? So maybe on deep-seated, long-term moral questions, which is what it is, um, the referendum can be a way of kind of validating a change in public opinion, whether it's abortion or gay marriage or whatever. But on fundamental political economic questions, they're a disaster, but we need more participation. The other thing, just on the general point about whether it's an optimistic or a pessimistic book, so one of the things I try and argue in this book is that Uh, we're not at the end of democracy. So this is about how something might play out in the future. We're somewhere, somewhere between the middle and the end. So if you take the story of democracy <laughs> to be sort of 50 to 100 years old, so we've probably got another 50 years. Who knows? More to go? Maybe less, maybe more. I don't think this thing we call democracy is likely to survive in this form through the 21st century. It'll be radically different. Some bits of it might be more democratic. Some bits might be less democratic. But I argue in the book that Thinking about the end is partly thinking about, we have got time left. We don't have an infinite amount of time. We can't just keep doing this forever, election after election, hoping someone will come along and save it. We have to think about the future as a sort of relatively open set of possibilities. But you know, we need to do something new. 
And so I get, give the analogy in the book, it's like a human life. The last third of a human life, a normal human lifespan, a long-lived life, you know, with sort of 70, 80, 90 years. You know, you could still have the best years of your life in the last third of your life, but <laughs> not if you're still behaving like you're 25, you won't. Um, you know, not if you're still acting out in the way that democracies are, not if you're still nostalgic for the days that have gone by. You have to give some things up. You know, you can't just carry on full pelt you have to try some things that are new. If you're going to have a fulfilling final mm -hmm. stage of your life, you can't just carry on doing the same thing over and over and hoping it gets better. You know, that's the definition of going down the wrong path. But we're in that kind of midlife bit where we don't want to give up all the stuff that we used to do, and we know we need to try something new. So we're kind of stuck. You know, we want to change, but we don't want to have to change in order to change. And this is trying to say thinking about the end is thinking about the future is open, right? Democracy could be anything, but it will not be this. This thing that we've been clinging on to dearly is going to fragment. Some bits are going to go over here. Some bits are probably going to disappear from democracy altogether. This technology is going to make some of our lives feel, we're going to feel more autonomous, more in control, more powerful. We're going to feel some people are more accountable. Other people are going to be less accountable. Some parts of our politics we're going to feel we lose complete control over. And we have to adapt to that and make it work for us. And it will not work if we're going to cling on to the thing that we know way past the point where it works and miss our opportunities to do something new. Thank you very much, David Runciman. Det var så min samtale med David Runciman fra Det Kongelige Bibliotek her i efteråret. Det er en samtale og et projekt, som er lavet i samarbejde med Det Kongelige Bibliotek. Og det er et samarbejde, der fortsætter. Om ikke så lang tid er det manden, der er blevet kaldt min stedfar, Bo Lidegaard, som har en samtale med den franske sociolog og klimafilosof Bruno Latour, med udgangspunkt i en bog, som er udgivet her på Informationsforlag. Hvis du vil høre den podcast, og hvis du vil høre vores gamle podcast, og hvis du i det hele taget er optaget af europæiske idéer, så søg under europæiske idéer i iTunes og abonner på vores service, så lover jeg, at de europæiske idéer kommer flyvende lige ind i din virkelighed.